Hello and welcome to Long Range Sensors, the show where we talk about growing up with Star Trek in England and pick an episode from the final frontier to reflect on. If you enjoyed the show, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Beam aboard and join the crew to get access to exclusive benefits over at patreon.com slash longrangesensors. My name is Alistair. I'm a Brit living in the Canadian province of Nova Scotia, and joining me from all the way over in London, England, as always, is a man who knows never to accuse a Norsican of cheating. It's Mr. Trevor Whale. Hello. How you doing, Al? <laughs> I'm doing good. How about yourself? I was going to do an impression of a Norsican, but it's sort of like just saying, blurting out angry sounds, isn't it? Like, human, play dumb jot. <laughs> Actually, that was all right. I was going to say I couldn't do it. <laughs> yeah, that's the only line I can think of that Norse can say, really, isn't it? That, but yeah, they're an interesting race. I, you, you also can't think Dom Jot without thinking Norsecans as well. Exactly, even though they're kind of uh, the game itself probably appears more. Well, I was going to say in Deep Space Nine, but actually, I think it's more talked about than actually seen, isn't it? Jake and Nog yeah. and all about playing it, and then yeah. and then you have Brunt, who also has. To bodyguards that are Norsicans as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and they appear in an episode of Enterprise, don't they? Uh, when they're sort of like pirate Norsican pirates. Um, yeah. So yeah, they kind of pop, pop up. They look like I always thought they looked a bit like the Predator, um, and also <laughs> look like um, uh, from the Predator films, and the, and that and those aliens that um, the Nemesis um, aliens from that Voyager episode um, called, called Nemesis. Not not the movie Star Trek Net Nemesis. They're kind of all that that same kind of predator looking. I think Michael Westmore was like really likes the Predator films and thought, oh, when there's a really angry alien I've got to make, then I should make them look like the Predator sort of thing. So yeah, it it still amazes me how many alien designs he's managed to come up with, and obviously basing oh, yeah. a lot on animals like um, reptilians and and baboons and whatever um but yes. definitely had his work cut out for him in voyager with just how oh, many yeah. aliens you saw each week granted a lot of them were just how do we just the nose just just add a few different <laughs> shaped ridges and there's our alien um <laughs> yeah what forehead variation haven't we attempted yet uh sort of thing <laughs> basically yeah. i mean no that i mean yeah it's amazing i mean probably voyager more than any episode or any series in all of Star Trek, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to say, um, I really did have that episode, like, like Alien of the Week kind of mm. trope uh, that kind of, he kind of gets, um, you know, ridiculed for, doesn't it, a little bit. But, um, yeah, he really, they really got their money's worth out of him. He's just a legend, I think. So, so pivotal to Star Trek, just as much as the writers are and the people mm. that actually crafted the sort of the, you know, the stories um, is absolutely amazing. Legend. Yeah, uh, there's. A, I'm going to have to see if I can find a link to it. To, and, and throw it on the discord but there's somebody who's done a different star trek alien every day oh cool this has been going on for months now and he's still only in like the first few letters of the alphabet he's still not even that far through just because of how many alien races that there have oh been God. and well, there's uh, an interesting thing that I, that I remember um i didn't find this out till a long time later i may have mentioned it before on the podcast but um, one of my favourite sort of guilty pleasure films is uh, Masters of the Universe, uh, the nineteen eighty seven film. Yeah, mm. uh, Michael Westmore did the makeup in that film. Um, yeah, so the so the really cool Skeletor makeup that um, 
Frank Langella wears. He was Skeletor in that film. He's also in Deep Space Nine, Frank Langella. Um, mm. Actually, if you look him up on Memory Alpha, um, he was Skeletor. Yeah, he did the makeup. So, yeah. Uh, um, he's on many things outside of it. He's got like a TV show as well, I think, in America. That's like a Face Off, it's called. Actually, I think like, his daughter, I think, presents it. Um, I'm looking it up on Wikipedia now, just so I'm not spouting a load of nonsense. Mackenzie Westmore, yeah. I'm assuming it's not based on the John Travolta and Nicolas Cage movie of the same name. <laughs> well, they steal each other's faces. Yeah, that's a really good <laughs> yeah. film, that, actually. Kind of cheesy, but really good. Um, no, it's... Um, that'd be a little, could you make that into a series? I don't know. But yeah, um, it's literally like... Um, there's loads of these sort of reality TV shows. Like It's like Bake Off, like the Great British Bake Off, oh, but okay. for people making like cool makeup, like sci-fi makeup. And, and contestants compete against each other to make the, the coolest looking makeup, like sci-fi makeup. And um, yeah, Michael Westmore's daughter presents it. And I think Michael Westmore has been on it to judge occasionally. Um, and a lot of the people that are on it are sort of like, oh, you know, I grew up watching Star Trek and I'm a Trekkie and this is why I'm on it. This is why I became a makeup artist because I love the, the aliens on it and all that sort of shizzle. Um, so yeah, it was, um, check it out if you're a big sort of michael westmore fan is kind of you know the show kind that show exists because of him really so yeah that's interesting yeah and i haven't even heard of that one that's really cool face off yeah face yeah. off check it out let's move on to our trek lifestyle section and I, th this is kind of an interesting one for us really because when we choose which topics we're going to talk about in these segments we always pick up things that are an important part of our memories of star trek growing up and when we yeah. were discussing this episode and making the decision to delve into a Star Trek game, something interesting cropped up. Yes. Because we decided to talk about the 25th anniversary game, which isn't actually just one game. It, uh, it came out in a few different flavors. And Trevor and I, yeah. uh, as it turns out, had zero crossover with them. Because... <laughs> Yeah. I grew up with, and I was really only aware of the PC version for DOS. And that initially came out on floppy disk, but I owned the enhanced CD-ROM version, which included enhanced sound effects, uh, along with the voices of the original cast. But what about you? Because obviously that wasn't where you gravitated towards. What was Star Trek the 25th anniversary for you growing up? Um, so probably the first version that I was aware of um, would be the, the N Nintendo versions. Um, I actually remember seeing just in the shops um, at the time, uh, sort of yeah, 1992, 1993 kind of time period. I think I know the actual 25th anniversary was 1991, but I think the games probably in, certainly in the, the PAL territories, video game territories where we grew up, I think we probably mm. would have got those probably more around 92. Um, but yeah, I remember seeing the game, the Game Boy version, um, in the shops, and I remember really wanting it. Also, you know, we were we, we both were, you know, when we were kids, we were already like big Trekkies at that point, and uh, I was already, already big Trekkie and big into video games. Obviously, still am to this day, but uh, it was, you know, that was my early years of being into that to games. Um, and uh, so, yeah, it was a natural thing to want a like a Star Trek video game. That's like the most, that's the best thing ever, right? Uh, as a Trekkie that's into <laughs> video games, and I had a Game Boy then. I think a Game Boy is the first games console I had ever. So it was perfect. Um, and I really wanted it, but for some reason I never managed to get it. Um, I think I remember reading reviews of it in magazines. Um, I remember getting Nintendo Magazine System, 
Mm -hmm. uh, which was uh, the official Nintendo magazine in the UK. Later on, it just got called the official Nintendo magazine. It's actually no longer going. It stopped a few years ago. Um, had a good long run, like, like 20 plus years, but I remember picking that up. And I remember they had a big section in the back that would have a big listing of every game that had come out for the NES and the Game Boy. Because the Super Nintendo hadn't come out yet. That was a maybe a matter of probably a matter of weeks away from coming out at that point. We got it very late in the UK in '92. Mm. Um, but I remember seeing it in there. Uh, but also, I remember seeing that there was also a NES ver version of that game. And I think they're pretty much just it was just a port, probably a port from to the Game Boy from the NES. I think the NES is kind of the the um, um, the lead platform um, for the console version of that game. But yeah, um, and then I actually got a NES later, a couple of years later, very, very late into the system's life, literally when it was on its dying kind of breaths, really, um, mm. in 1993 um, was when I got a NES. But I don't think I actually played it until much, much later. Um, I, didn't, I didn't get the NES version. So, uh, so um, let, let, let me ask you, yeah. was it just that it wasn't around, like you just didn't see it on the shelves, or did you see it and it just... The timing was wrong, perhaps, you know, because obviously at that age, trying to afford a game isn't always the easiest. Yeah. It, yeah. It, you know, um, what kind of led to it being more of a later in life thing than around that time? Probably a mixture of what you just said, really, because um, one big thing that might blow away some of our sort of North American listeners, uh, which is probably most of them, actually, um, the NES wasn't popular in the UK. And now you obviously you, you probably vouch for that as well. Mm. Um and for me as well, growing up in a very sort of old-fashioned seaside town, uh, you know, often you wouldn't really, um, I feel like we'd get sort of, it would take longer for things to sort of disseminate to us, like like the, the newest consoles and the newest games. Uh, I mean, the biggest town to where I live was in Colchester. Again, I've talked about, you know, I used to go there when I was a kid. That was the, the sort of the nearest big town that we'd go to. And you'd have to really go there to be able to get, you know, any kind of uh, video games or anything. So there were game shops there. Mm. Um there was a Virgin Mega Store, and there was um, uh, an electronics boutique, um, and there was a couple of indie game shops um, as well. Um, when I was, you know, a very small kid, like eight, nine, ten years old, it was basically like BT's toy store that you'd have to go into or Argos. So to be honest, and, and, and the NES being quite um, far less popular in the UK than it was in other in in, in the US and probably Canada, I think it would be difficult. to to get NES games, or there'd be a very small selection. It'd be the usual suspects yeah. like Mario, um, you know, the the popular fran franchises, I WWF or whatever, you know. So yeah, you would struggle to get a game like that. Yeah, I think that's probably why I never even knew that it existed. In all honesty, the NES itself. Uh, <laughs> the What's a NES? <laughs> no, um, <laughs> no, just the, just the game. Uh, I, right, I had. Yeah. I mean, I grew up with the Master System and then the Mega Drive. I ended up inheriting my neighbor's old Nintendo and, uh, and sort of ended up with that very, again, oh, very cool. late on. But yeah, Star Trek, I just, I never saw it on the shelf. And I think that probably when it was on the shelf, because I didn't own a Nintendo personally, I was probably just yeah. not looking in that section. But yeah. Yeah, and I think no um, the consoles that were popular, I mean, in the 8-bit era, I mean, I mean, the UK, the, the Sega Mars system was huge. It was uh, absolutely destroyed the NES in in, in the UK and, and in yeah. chunks of Europe. There wasn't any. Um, it didn't, didn't get a Star Trek game. Yeah, and they were also having to compete against the British microcomputer industry as well, where well, games yeah. cost a tiny fraction, like ten percent yeah. of the cost of a console game. So people were like, why would I spend all this money on a Nintendo game? Yeah. Weirdly though, there wasn't really much Star Trek wise on those. There was a couple of like um 
remember the Atari ST had a, had a, a Star Trek game that was a hmm. um, very early kind of Star Trek game. Uh, the Amiga actually got Star Trek 25th anniversary. I was a big Amiga fan in the 90s, still am. Uh, yes. That got its own port of that. Though I've heard that it was a very buggy port and not a, yes. a great version of it. Yeah, I've wanted to grab it. Um, it comes in beautiful, the beautiful big, big box. You know, PC games came in the big boxes, so did Amiga games, and you got all the feelies yeah. and posters and stuff. I really want to grab a copy of it. Um, but yeah, but apparently, I think it's as good as the original PC version. Yeah. So, uh, and and the PC version is also available on Macintosh as well. But yeah. I played the DOS version, uh, and I didn't actually choose it. I didn't buy it. I came home one day, and I, I'm probably going to tell a story like this because this has happened on three occasions for me right. uh, growing up, where I've walked yeah. into my home and I've heard computerized noises from upstairs only to discover <laughs> that there's, uh, there's been new stuff for me that I wasn't aware of that my father has been testing. Oh, nice. So, yeah, I come into the house. I hear the Star Trek theme, very digitized, that I hadn't heard before. And I rushed upstairs, and there's my father on my computer playing Star Trek the 25th Anniversary. Bear in mind, he did not really like Star Trek. It was literally just him <laughs> testing it. Uh, it was supposed to be a surprise present, but he wanted to make sure it worked first. Yeah. So upon finding out, I was instructed never to tell my mother and to make sure that I pretended that I was excited as though I'd never seen it before. And you know when it came to actually unwrapping it, and actually unwrapping it, I yeah. did not uh, have to fake any enthusiasm because it was an exciting game. But my father, it wasn't one of those you still have to wait. He continued to allow me to continue playing it as long as mother wasn't in the house. Oh, nice! <laughs> <laughs> wow. But, um, yeah. Uh, so for those who aren't aware, it's it, it's a, a game that's split into two main segments because. It's a point-and-click adventure, first and foremost, where you have some away team ground missions. And there's also a starship simulation element to it as well, where there's space combat where you're, you're set on the bridge in this kind of very faux 3D fighter thing that was very popular around that time, where you're kind of in a 3D space and the ships are just 3D renderings of, of ships, but they don't rotate. It's just basically images that get swapped out. Really. They're sprites, basically. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, scale, and scale and everything. That's it. And yeah. that, that those segments haven't aged well. <laughs> Let's just say I that. Imagine. <laughs> um, but no, it was. I I really liked it at the time. It was a really good having this spaceship combat stuff in there, where you are still having to manage shields and weapons, and there's various damage to your ship and, and stuff. It consisted of seven episodes it was basically done like a few episodes of the tv series they were all standalone episodes as well uh i've got a list of the episodes here which were demon world which was the first one which i always remember the title being read out by deforest kelly right yeah and then there's hijacked love's labor jeopardized another fine mess trial and errors that's old devil moon and vengeance and the the great thing about it was that they were they felt like episodes right down to not just the narrative structure uh, where you would have a teaser and all your different acts. They, they would have the title sequence in there as well. And the way that the missions were set up was that there were multiple ways to complete them. There was multiple solutions to puzzles. 
And even if you don't complete it right, even if you lose, you can still continue and get to the end of the game. But the aim is to play the Starfleet way and you get a higher score rating at the end. Um, and yeah, uh, and one of the things that I didn't really like, consciously know about this playing it, I just knew that your red shirts could die, which we've already discussed is not necessarily <laughs> always been the case that red was the safest yeah. color. Um, but they did yeah. code the game to make it so that there's certain scenarios you can go in to make sure that your red shirt on the away team gets killed. Oh, cool. Yeah. Well, you know, you can't have a, anything that's to, for the original series if you don't have some kind of a red shirt death or mechanism to have that <laughs> happen, right? People would yeah, complain, just, if anything, if that didn't happen. <laughs> yeah, just from a cultural thing, it's the, it's the one time I let that slide. <laughs> <laughs> it had... Um, it had a really weird UI in that the UI was normally hidden and you had to bring it up with a right-click menu. I really liked right. it, though, because I, I know you haven't played it, but have you seen screenshots or videos of the game before? Yes, I have, yeah. Yeah, the artwork is phenomenal. It's obviously very low resolution. Um, yeah, I would guess around... Guessing like 3, 320 by 200 or something. Or, or normally yeah, still. it's something like what that. What it was those days. Yeah. And just with the limited colors that they had available, there is just so much detail put into everything. And so it's kind of nice not having the screen cluttered with a user interface as well. Yeah. But it, at the same time, it was kind of finicky that to use something on something, you had to go select the use command, go open in your inventory, choose the thing you want to use, and then go into your inventory, choose it what you want to use it on. Or it may be just be that you try and pick a phaser and try to shoot Spock. Uh, which he tell, point he tells you it's illogical. <laughs> you know, but there's a lot of stuff. And you could use keyboard shortcuts both for that and for when you're on the bridge as well. Yeah. There's just a lot of depth to it. Uh, but one thing that you might not be aware of is that they also had uh, the Star Trek library computer. Oh, cool. So like a, basically a memory alpha type thing. Yeah. Very, very early wiki built into the game where you could open it up, you can put in a character's name, you can put it in a ship, a planet, and it would have all sorts of, of information. That even on the CD-ROM version, the computer's voice reads out to you as well. But you would oh, cool. also go into that just to try and solve some of the puzzles too, which That's cool. was very neat. It, it wasn't obvious though. It's one of those you had to really think about what it was you were searching for. So from a gameplay perspective, it doesn't hold your hand. But at the same time, just being able to kind of go into this and, and look for information back in the early days where there wasn't really much available. You know, the internet yeah. really wasn't first and foremost for that kind of stuff. That was pretty typical uh, for point-and-click adventures in the 90s. Um, anyone yeah. that's played The Secret of Monkey Island, uh, the, the first two games in that series on the PC and the Amiga and the Atari ST, there was like some of the puzzles are super vague and you haven't really got any kind of hint sort of situation either hmm. you either got to wait for you know if, if my case for the amiga version i've got to wait until like basically i'm stuck and that's it you know unless i accidentally stumble upon the solution i've got to wait for a guide to come out and like or you know maybe uh, the latest issue of amiga format might have a hmm. guide to the game um so yeah you're very much uh, on your own um with these sort of games and, and, and talking about that as well there's there's also a very early form of copy protection in there as well that pre the internet actually worked very effectively because yeah. 
when you had to go on a mission, it would say you'd need to warp somewhere. So you'd open up navigation either with your keyboard or you'd select Sulu uh, from the bridge and you'd have a star chart and you'd have to select the planet that you would go to to be able to warp there. But there's no names on those planets on the star chart or you've got a um, kind of, you know, it's just a grid really. And the manual had that information in it. So if you went to the right place, you continue the story. If you go to the wrong place, you're suddenly attacked by a swarm of Klingon ships or marauders or, you know, some other enemy. So to to a point where it's unfairly matched, you will not survive. There is no real way to to do that. So that was a really clever. Yeah, it was was a very clever (laughs) copy protection system, really. Uh, So without the manual, there, there was no way of really completing the game at all. Yeah. Again, that was quite typical. I mean, obviously, you know, with the Amiga um, that I was playing at that point in time as well. Um, yeah, the, uh, most games would have some form of copy, t- copy protection, and most of it would be um, based upon something to do with the manual. Um, one of my favorite games is a game called Frontier Elite 2. Um, oh, yeah. And in that, you periodically get asked if you dock at a space station, um, the police will ask you f- um, to confirm your identity by saying, um, Please tell me the the second letter of the third paragraph of the uh, page twenty three in the manual. Um, and if you put the wrong um, uh, thing in because you haven't got the manual, uh, you'll get arrested and you'll um, and and the game will end. So you had to have the manual. Like, there were people that would like if you if you're able to get a copy of the game that was cracked by a cracking group, mm. they, would, they would remove that copy of protection. Um, but yeah, if you had the real release, you'd have to definitely have that manual because otherwise you won't be able to fit you know continue with the game. So yeah, there was that to contend with as well um, in those days. Yeah, yeah. The the, the manual also had a, a fun thing at the very back, which I because I, I didn't really know much in terms of good health when playing games, and they actually had a, a section uh, at the back called the Games Players Charter, and right. it just had like a bunch of bullet points of of things such as avoid playing when tired play for no more than one hour at a time. Those I completely ignored. Sit well away from the screen, preferably no closer than 10 feet. I didn't know what a foot was. I was taught (laughs) metric. Uh, Play games in well-lit areas. I'd often be playing at night and try not to draw attention to my bedroom for my mother, so that didn't happen. Uh, Reduce the brightness of the screen to darken the contrast i didn't even know what contrast was at that age and use a smaller screen as possible it's like i've got one screen (laughs) there's nothing else for me to use but i must say playing it these days i i will play it in a window because if i have it on my monitor as it is it is so pixelated that yes it is it is better to use it on a slightly smaller screen yeah you're probably dealing with like a like we said, sort of 320 by 200 pixel resolution that's getting upscaled by a factor of God knows what if you're on a, you know, particularly like some kind of something like a 4K screen. Um, it depends on what sort of thing it is, though. I've got, um, I have a 4K TV and I've got some retro consoles plugged into it uh, with an upscaler. Hmm. Um, and I actually really like sort of really sharp um, pixels and I think that looks really great. There are ways if you're playing an emulator, you can apply filters, but I often find it just feels like it's like adding a layer of Vaseline over the screen. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's kind of you know it doesn't look good to me. So I actually quite like the razor sharp pixels. Um, but yeah, it's um, 
the, the pixel art kind of does look better on a on a traditional CRT or or a monitor. Absolutely. Mm. Now, you also mentioned um, the that there was an LCD game as well. And, yes, uh, and, and there the, the was one for twenty fifth anniversary. Was that the only LCD Star Trek game, or have there been others as well? Um. Well, it's interesting because that particular game, um, at the time, Konami had the license to publish Star Trek games uh, on consoles. So Star Trek 25th Anniversary, uh, the NES and the Game Boy versions were published by Konami. Although if you look at the box, you'll see a, co uh, a company called either Palcom or Ultra Games. They were sort of um, fake companies that Konami would publish games under to get over Nintendo's game releasing limit. Oh, yeah. Um, because Nintendo would only later release a set amount of games in a year. So publishers just got around that by making fake game companies and just releasing the games through them to get around the limit, um, <laughs> which is kind of silly when you think about it. Wasn't it like one or two games a year? Something like that, yeah. One or two could be maybe even three or four, but that but they also wanted to release more to make more money. Mm. So, the, so the workaround was just to make fake you know, pub publishers that were, were really Konami and uh, Ultra Games and Palcom. Um, uh, were were two of those um so yeah so they had the license me konami also you know quite a famous uh video game developer one of my personal mm. favorites might even be my favorite um probably after sega but um games like you know to the these days you'll think of them as like metal gear solid castlevania contra um pro evolution soccer in fact the only, all they really do now is pro evolution soccer but uh, back in the day they had a ton of amazing franchises especially for teenage mutant ninja turtles as well yeah, they would do uh, licenses. Yeah, um, Ninja Turtles, like you just said, Bucky O'Hare. Um, if anyone remembers that, maybe they did a great uh, NES game for for Bucky O'Hare. Um, GI Joe, uh, the arcade GI Joe game, I think they did, and also like Star Trek. Um, they didn't develop the games though. The NES and the Game Boy versions were derived from the PC version that you've just sort of talked about. Um, sort of cut down versions that I think Interplay who made the PC version also developed but Konami would publish it but at the same time Konami would make um were making handhelds a uh, little LCD handhelds I don't mean a handheld like these days you would think of a Nintendo Switch or a PlayStation Vita um these were literally very very rudimentary handhelds that played a single game uh based on sort of a basic liquid crystal screen um, that would have sort of certain segment that would have um, a segmented display that would get that when certain areas of this would light up to show a particular character or a particular image, uh, and that would be all that display could do. It, it wasn't like a pixel display like a like a normal handheld that you'd think of like a Switch would be. That's a fantastic long-winded description of the <laughs> of the word rubbish. Probably bored everyone to death, but yeah, they were very very extremely limited uh by today's standards <laughs> uh the gameplay would be like you know very very basic um but you know for us as kids these things yep. were probably like like 10 11 10 12 pounds um at most mm. um and for us you know as kids who you know really wouldn't have too much to compare them to apart from perhaps a game boy um they were pretty cool and they were good for like you know for the school bus or any for killing some time in, in any other way um, but they made loads of them based on the properties that they had the licenses to. So they made there was uh, Ninja Turtles LCD handhelds, there was Top Gun, Bucky O'Hare, um, and yeah, they did, they did Star Trek, Star Trek 25th anniversary, and it even had a voice chip inside it, which spoke. And basically, uh, the gameplay would consist of like a, a battle sort of um, segment and a rescue segment. 
and the battle segment would just be you'd, you'd be in control of the Enterprise, the Enterprise A, in this mm. case, and uh, you'd be sort of um, you you'd be being attacked by Klingon birds of prey, and there would be several of them that would sort of flash up up on uh, on and off on the top segment of the screen, and they'll be firing photon torpedoes at you, and you'd be using your you'd be rotating your shields to deflect them. To deflect the uh, or to uh, absorb the torpedoes that the Klingons were firing at you, um, and at the same time you'd be able to fire back at them. Um, and basically, um, you just need to sort of defeat those those Klingon birds of prey. And once you've done that, um, you then go um, you warp away and you go into a res a rescue segment um, where the display would show you a planet and the mm. Enterprise orbiting it. That planet's been overrun by Klingons, and you've basically got to um, beam people up. Uh, there'd be like some the planet itself would have some shields, and those shields actually have a gap in them, and you'd use that gap to beam uh, to rescue pe people from that planet that have been overrun by Klingons, and that'd basically be it. And there, there's sort of a resource uh, management element to it. There'd be you'd have a limited amount of power that you have to manage and wait to charge up. Um, when you beam up a survivor, um, you I think that that replenishes your your power um, when you do do that. So yeah, it's literally just kind of two stages really. And I think the sort of speed at which like the Klingons attack you and and the amount of resource that you have available would get uh, like the enemies would either speed up or the resource would go down to make it more difficult and more and more di difficult. Obviously, you know um, you can um, be killed and there'd be a game over. The Enterprise can be destroyed. Um, and yeah, and it also has um, a voice. Um, I'm actually struggling to find somewhere that says what the voice actually says. Oh no, it actually says "Live long and prosper" when you complete the third level of the game. So that's probably three rounds of the of the battle stage and the rescue stage. You do that repeated three times, and then you get um, someone saying "Live long and prosper." It might not actually be um, Spark or Leonard Nimoy. It's probably just someone at Konami. Saying live long and prosper, probably you know, <laughs> crunched down and compressed but, beyond all, all all recognition. But um, it was pretty cool. That's that's astonishing to me though, because normally those things were just limited to just beeps, and that was it. Yeah, I mean the actual sound effects of the game itself were just beeps, but you would mm. get that voice, and they did that in the other handhelds that they did. Uh, there was a, a couple of Ninja Turtles handhelds. I think there was three of them actually. They did like a an original Turtles handheld. A Turtles 2 and a Turtles 3, and I think 2 and 3 had a voice as well of like one of the characters, I think Splinter, uh, would say something to you, or, the, or the, they would say Cowabunga or something. Yeah, I only I only ever played the first one. A friend of mine had it and would bring it to school. Yeah, that was probably the one I saw the most, um, actually. Um, they were in that very distinctive kind of, almost like Arrow, almost like shaped like the Starfleet Delta. The yeah. actual unit the unit itself. Um, they all they all were in, in this same kind of unit. They'll just be different colours. I've still got some of them. I've got a Bucky O'Hare and a Top Gun, and I've got a Gradius, uh, which is quite a famous Konami shoot 'em up. Mm. Um, and they were all in different. The Star Trek one was grey. The Bucky O'Hare one was blue. Uh, Turtles was um, was green, as you probably would have, would have guessed. Um, <laughs> and yeah, that was the um, the Konami LCD unit. I actually, I'm actually not aware um, if they made any others um, Star Trek LCD uh, games. I mean, this would have been, I think this probably would have been 1991 when they released this. So at this point, it just happened to be the point in time that, that Konami had that. But I mean, looking up, mm. actually, you, do, you need to do a quick Google search. Um, and there was absolutely quite a few of them. Tiger 
uh, made LCD handhelds, probably slightly more popular than um, the Konami ones. Yeah, those are the ones that I tended to have. Yeah, I only had one. I had Sonic the Hedgehog. They actually would mm. license a lot of properties themselves and release a handheld, like things like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat and even like Castlevania uh, and, 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 thing, and movies and TV shows. Some things didn't actually have a video game. There would actually be um, a Tiger handheld, all in the very distinctive kind of uh, rectangle shape with the with the D-pad and like two fire buttons and a speaker in, in between. I think they've actually re-released some of them like recently. They um, did, yeah. 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 Um, like Transformers and a couple of others. Um, they re-released. Did you buy one? I did not. No, no. I. It's one of those no. things where I had such a vivid imagination that it was enjoyable playing them because I think it has to be coupled with you filling in the blanks. Oh yeah. For what yeah, the, for sure. the handhelds weren't capable of presenting, but I know that that is pure, pure um, jank. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh but nostalgia was the other word i was trying to think oh hell of. yeah hell Pure yeah Pure nostalgia, I mean, not... and i know that it's just yeah. that it, it's never going to live up to my memories of it as a child so I, I i wouldn't bother but how how did the nintendo version for the nes compare to the dos version because i've seen some screenshots of it where obviously and as you've kind of mentioned before the quality wasn't quite the same because it is running on more limited hardware for it. Uh, but what was the gameplay yeah. like? Um, so, as I sort of touched upon, it was still Interplay that, that developed this this NES version of the game. Um, mm. I don't know if it was literally exactly the same time as the PC version. I think well, the PC version is, I think, is clearly the, the, the original version. Um, but um, they, they obviously took, you know, what, what they made on the, the PC and then mm. just sort of cut it down uh, to work on on uh, the NES. But a lot of the elements are the, uh, are the same. There, there, there's like um, different types of gameplay. Um, so there's bits where you're managing the Enterprise uh, from the bridge, and you can actually move around the bridge and ask, um, you know, do different things with, with, with the crew to hail um, planets and, and other ships by asking Uhura to do that, Sulu to navigate to places, Scotty to change the speed or, you know, get, warp drive going and spock to analyze a planet that, that you're orbiting you'd actually go around and ask people to, to to do this so a lot of similar functionality then yeah 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 exactly and um there's obviously missions where you know you you point the enterprise to a particular planet that's your your next mission you go there and there's often a cutscene showing um kirk and spock and, and often mccoy talking to each other as they're on their way to uh, the transporter room and um they look quite quite good actually. If you look look up the game on on, on YouTube, you'll you'll see mm. this. Um, they made a, a bit of an effort with the cutscenes, and then you beam down to a planet, and it's basically from a top down perspective. You just can control. I think you control one of the characters, like Captain Kirk, and you basically got to go and complete the whatever the mission is to rescue someone or take a sample of something or you know typical Star Trek stuff. Um, I'm not sure if it lines up with the story um, that the PC version had, um, but um, in terms of what you could actually do, um, it was very similar. And uh, there was, you know, you, you could get your tricorder out to scan things still. So, yeah, actually for a NES game, it, it was quite it was quite in-depth. And I think it did a very good job of adapting, you know, what was a point-and-click game um, hmm. to the NES. I mean, there are other examples of that on the NES. Um, quite a famous early point-and-click game, Maniac Mansion. Actually got a NES version. 
Um, so check that out if you want to oh. see how, you know, the NES handled those sort of point-and-click adventures, and it's quite good. And uh, yeah. I would say Star Trek 25th Anniversary is another good example. And then you've got, like, the Game Boy version. Again, like, it would have been derived from, from the PC version, although more li- likely that they, they took, like, like, the NES version and, again, sort of downported it to uh, what we had on the NES. But mm. it was more, I mean, when you look at... Um, Again, you can look it up on on, on YouTube. Um, there was um, more of an emphasis on you know when you're controlling the Enterprise as opposed to telling people to do things on the bridge and then they do it and you don't really have any you don't you don't. It's not like you have a little a light Enterprise sprite that you control uh, that you move around yourself. On the Game Boy version, you actually did do that. Um, there were parts of the gameplay where you actually controlled the the, um, the Enterprise itself um, through like a, a segment of space. You moved it up up and down with the control control pad and then there'd be a battle segment where again you could you know move the enterprise around freely and um fight the enemy ships and then you know you would uh you would then get to a planet um and then you would beam down to the planet and there'd be another sort of you know exploration based top down view um segment of the game where you would move around on a planet and you know do do the mission that you need to do so yeah for eight bit games they're quite complicated um Hmm. and i think they're pretty good in terms of um, I would probably argue that they're some of the, they're still among the best, you know, from, um, again, as someone who's only played them briefly and didn't own them back in the day, I, I played them later on through emulators. I, I would say they're probably the best examples of Star Trek games on sort of 8 and 16-bit hardware. There was a Star Trek The Next Generation NES game. Um, I don't think that was as good. I mean, every time I've tried to play it, I found it extremely t- tedious and a bit abstract and a bit difficult to sort of get into probably a bit too complicated for its own good, I would say. And you could probably say the same with some of these 16-bit games as well, in the Mega Drive had a next-gen game. Uh, Super Nintendo had a Starfleet Academy game, um, I think, and a next-gen game. Um, yes, yeah, there was a yeah. Yeah, Starfleet Academy. They, they did a similar thing to this, really, where yeah, there was yeah. a PC release and then a Nintendo release as, as well for that. Um, and with you saying about it being top-down, that also feels very fitting as a Nintendo game, especially based on games like yeah. Zelda and things, it, it it does seem more fitting to what that hardware was really good at. Yeah, I think it's um, a case of like what what is the best way to when you not haven't got haven't got a mouse, what what's the best way to control basically an away team, uh, and and yeah. you know it's fairly straightforward. You can you know just have a top down view as we've seen in other NES games, tons of NES games, and it works really well. Um, so I think they did a great job of, of um, adapting it and. Um, you know, it was just before um, there wasn't a Super Nintendo version, 25th anniversary. I think the SNES came out just after the 25th anniversary was a big thing, really. But I don't think there was any effort to, they probably didn't really want to want to make an effort to, to port it, especially when the NES had such a huge install base, mm. um, I would say. And it's interesting because something we touched upon um, when we went out, uh, or just before we started, we started um, recording the show, um, there wasn't really, when we got into sort of the PlayStation era, despite you know the huge popularity of the PlayStation, we didn't really get a big influx of games. In fact, it was just a single PlayStation game, which you know yeah. um, they really had to sort of fudge things to get a Star Trek story into what is basically a generic space shoot shooter, really. Um, so, yeah, um, it was yeah, annoying. Star Trek Invasion really and then Shattered Universe for the PlayStation 2. So, again, there was only yes. really that one for the second generation of their consoles. Yeah, well, I think it was actually they got Voyager Elite Force, didn't they, on the PlayStation 2 as well? Oh, that's right. Um, yes, they did. Yes. Yeah. 
Probably not the version you want to, um, not the best version, because it was a bit cut down from the PC version. Still pretty good, though, if you haven't got access to a PC. It's very, very cheap as well these days. Um, and that's a game and, I have played a lot, is Voyager Elite Force. Yeah, arguably one of the best, if not the best, of the oh, Star yes. Trek games, which yes. we will no doubt get to at some point <laughs> during yes. the run of this podcast as well. Um, but I, I think that's probably a good place to, to wrap up. Uh, did you ever play Star Trek 25th Anniversary? Let us know and share your memories of it by emailing us at longrangesensors at iCloud.com. We would love to hear from you uh, about any of this stuff because it's, it's always really cool uh, reminiscing about it. But for now, it's time for us to put away our keyboards and game controllers as we're picking up a distress call on Long Range Sensors in the Deep Space Nine episode, The Sound of Her Voice. So this is season six, episode 25, so right at the end of that season, and it really puts us deep in the midst of the Dominion War. And it's interesting because it's not really an episode that deals with the Dominion War directly. Um, no. It doesn't really lead on from maybe what happened in the prior episode or, or episodes. It's actually kind of a self-contained bottle episode, I would say. Wouldn't you mm. agree, Al? Uh, for the most part, yes, but it does also do, although it's not, following on from the previous one it does do a lot of foreshadowing for what's to come yes uh which we'll get into a little bit later on but i i think that that was really well done but yes it is for the most part it's a bottle show that's very reflective on where everybody's at in the middle of this war yeah i think the aim of it really was to kind of take a breather um, from yeah. you know the very grim and very uh, well, this is not a particularly happy episode. Like ultimately, as we'll get to, but um, mm. yeah, from 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 the grind of dealing with the war, it was it's just kind of a, like a break from it. And especially when we would go immediately after this into some quite heavy Dominion War stuff and character stuff, um, it's kind of a, kind of an eye of the storm almost situation with this episode, which makes it interesting to what well, basically why 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 we chose it. I think. Yeah, and it, it it opens with one of my favorite things, which is Odo making Quark's life a misery. Uh, yes. Which, <laughs> just, as we've touched <laughs> on before, it's always, yeah. always a joy to watch those two play off each other. And, yes. and the whole thing that Odo has against Quark right now is the new bar stools that have no backs on them. And uh, more from a real-world perspective... Uh, there's a website, X Asterisk Scientia, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. I've never been too sure whether it's Scientia or Scientia. But never heard it said. <laughs> yeah, Real well, well, me neither. I've always seen it written. Yeah. Uh, but they have a great guide on chairs that have appeared within Star Trek. So all the ones that they have on different bridges, um, oh, in wow. alien bars and in crew quarters. Because uh, I was thinking, like, should I replace my office chair and wouldn't it be great to have a chair that they've actually used on star trek and my god those things are expensive the amount really? of budget that just went onto chairs in star trek alone is insane and wow they do have the chairs that appeared in quark's bar as like the regular chairs and those surprisingly unlike a lot of them those were just from ikea of all places well, <laughs> but the new bar stools that don't have the backs, which Odo is saying 
is a safety hazard because Morn could end up falling off the stool and injuring himself. Those aren't listed yeah. on there. I, I have not been able to tell what those, uh, those stools actually were. Um, but I just love all the legal minutiae that goes on between them, like the, the accusations and the defenses as to why those stools should be allowed or, or not. Um, it just, just goes to show how great uh, the the repartee, I guess you call it, between uh, Odo and Cork is. They're not really. It's entertaining to watch without really being massively. It is kind of funny, but um, they're not going out of the way of being zany or silly or ridiculous with it. It's just, it's just, mm. um, it's just really well written, like um, dialogue, basically. Yeah, yeah, and just the things that they can pick up on with each other, because Kira comes in and just completely whisks Odo away, and. We've got to remember, this is getting into their relationship with each other now. Yeah. And Quark is beginning to spot that Odo is distracted by Kira, which can only mean one thing, an opportunity. Oh, yes. <laughs> the naughtiness, the naughty yeah. Ferengi stuff. And then, and then we're, we're left. <laughs> we're left dangling on that thread as we find Cisco returning from his escort duties on the Defiant, where he's been working with Cassidy, his girlfriend. Yes, uh, apparently they went to the vegan system, <laughs> which, is, which is literally always cool. It's like what, I, guess, I didn't catch that. I honestly didn't catch that. The vegan system, or the vague, probably the vegan system. I can't actually. I only just watched the episode, but it escapes me how they pronounced it. But um, when you, when you see it written, it's it's the vegan system. So you know you don't want to go go there dressed as a giant beef burger or anything. You probably would get violate some kind of um, sacred, you know. Um, code that they have but yeah be a great Going place if you're a vegan, a mcdonald's I guess. mascot <laughs> <laughs> exactly Ronald mcdonald is not welcome on that planet <laughs> uh, but it's an interesting conversation that they have because bashir hasn't been around in days because he's been filling out paperwork for starfleet medical and cassidy just says that she wouldn't be able to cope with having to deal with all of that because paperwork is that side of starfleet the we do see is a thing, especially with all the logs they have to do, but it's rarely a focus of an episode. Yeah, and... it's not really clear um, what paperwork people have to do in sort of Star Trek land. Um, mm. We get the impression from episodes that there's like admin and they have to do like, they have direct reports that they have to do reviews on and stuff. But um, it's interesting to see what that would actually look like because you would think in by that time in 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 like the 24th century perhaps as a lot of this stuff would get automated and there wouldn't really be any manual having to type up things and you know mm. log in and do admin stuff on portals of things like we do now but yeah apparently yeah Cisco just has to do all this stuff just like we do now I do wonder if people who have experience in the navy which Star Trek is very heavily based on if there's a similar thing there where there's a lot of paperwork and reports. Yeah, that's probably it. I mean, there's logging. Obviously, there's the captain's log that we know, you know, how, how yeah. that works. But um, yeah, a war especially must generate a lot of paperwork, which is kind of a funny thing to say, but <laughs> you get what I mean. <laughs> yeah. But Cisco has been making some mean comments about how he's actually preferred Bashir being quiet because of all of this. And Cassidy outright calls him out on it yeah very rude yeah very grumpy and then we have Worf uh calling from the bridge calls cisco in 
uh, because they've picked up this distress call from a female Starfleet officer. They find they're six days away at maximum warp, I believe it was. And yes. the Defiant is the closest ship because the hero ship always is. That old chestnut, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so what they, is the Enterprise that's near to everything that's happening yeah. <laughs> a lot of the time? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's to, it's, it does make sense, though, because if you're the one picking up the distress call, then nobody else obviously has, and space is vast. So it stands to reason yeah. at that point. Yeah, we, we, we can live with that. But he orders O'Brien to try and establish a two-way communication with her and to tell her that her heroes are on the way, the heroes that she's been requesting, uh, which I, I thought was a nice touch. Yeah, she seems quite um, someone that will be quite laid back and casual and jovially, even in like her sort of distress, uh, uh, distress call, really. Mm. But yeah, I don't think it's established what has actually happened um, at this point to this person's crew. But yeah, I mean, it seems um, it's actually odd that it's it, it's actually the captain that has survived. Um, normally, in any kind of disaster, you would often have it would be some lower ranking person that you'd have as as as, as the survivor. Yeah, because then they can say, "Yeah, my captain died, and I had to escape, and everything." And like, yeah, um, <clears throat> but it would, and also there's the idea that the captain leaves last. But I think the you know in this case um the captain left last and but unfortunately everybody else died in doing that you know um so yeah quite uh quite a horrific situation unfortunately for this person so are we saying patience is a virtue what like um when abandoning ship <laughs> wait to see who dies first yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you can make your getaway probably yeah yeah nothing to do about going down with the ship just send everybody out and just see how they fare first before you leave <laughs> yeah they could be the guinea pigs, yeah. <laughs> we would not be good captains. Um, Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> but we, we find out that this officer, this this captain, is named Lisa. Uh, but the communication is still only one way. So the crew can hear her, she can't hear them. And I like how caring O'Brien is about the situation, because he's been listening to her the whole time. He knows she's been all alone. And even though Bashir doesn't see the point, O'Brien feels it, that it's the least he can do to just listen to her and, and just be that ear, whether she knows he can do so or not. And, and this is mostly because Lisa reminds O'Brien of his cousin. So I think he's just got that kind of, he's almost kind of gotten that emotional attachment to what's happening. And we know that Lisa just wants to hear from someone um, and then starts to be convinced that she can be heard. So she's talking out into the void. She knows, like, just in her heart that somebody must be able to hear her and uh, opens up saying that she just wants to know that she won't die alone. And it's yeah, such it's, a the, deep and, like, like, you, you can easily picture yourself having the same worries and concerns if you yourself were in that situation. Yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. I mean, it's it's heartbreaking, really. It, but mm. at the same time, I was kind of thinking, like, in, in a typical sort of trekkie way, I guess, like what 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 is an escape pod like? <laughs> so I was thinking, like, you know, she obviously crashed on on this planet in the escape pod. 
how much are you actually given? You know, I mean, you could survive quite easily in like a shuttlecraft for a long time. It's like a camper van, um, in a <laughs> sense. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I, I don't know if it, if they have toilets or anything like that. Um, I'm sure they do, to be <laughs> honest, but they don't have a, a replicator. And toss it out. Yeah. Or beam it out or beam it away or, so, or something, I guess. But um, I think it's established they have very basic things. Like I think a lot of the time they have a transporter. Um, there's, there's a replicator most times, I think. So you're probably okay. You can live in there for, you know, as long as you have power, really, indefinitely. Mm. Whereas an, a, an escape pod, I'm, you know, it's never really clearly established. Not that there's, there's really an episode that would ever have an opportunity to clearly establish this. It's kind of a thing you'd have in a technical manual, really, and it probably isn't a te- te- technical manual. But um, is it just trying to think about what she would have available to her to keep her um, alive? There'd obviously be some food, I guess. It would be like a med kit and... Yeah, a tricorder. Yeah, Starfleet rations. Yeah, uh, Starfleet rations, a tricorder. That's probably about it, really. You're probably not expected to stay in the pod in any way, which probably wouldn't be advisable anyway, because it's just, you know, uncomfortable. And you need to be able to, if you're able to, of course, there's probably a situation where you might land on a planet where it's inhospitable. So that would be interesting. Mm. Um, I don't know if they're really designed to more just float around in space as opposed to land on a planet really but they are capable of doing that that's it's an interesting sort of um thoughts as to how practical they are for the potential situations they'll end up in um so yeah there's kind of elements of that come up in this episode because of what lisa's situation is and then we start to get the inkling of quark's opportunity where he starts to ask odo if he's bought kira a gift for saturday which understandably confuses Odo, you know, what's the significance of Saturday? And Quark points out it's the one month anniversary. Yes. And Odo just immediately just thinks he's been scammed into just buying something from Quark and is just insisting that he doesn't want to buy anything from him. But Quark just doesn't even want to be involved at all anyway. And Odo starts talking under his breath as Jake's sort of next to him and just saying, you know, one month gift, ever heard of anything so ridiculous? And I just love how Jake just nods, <laughs> and Odo's like, and just knows oh. what's going down." Yeah, yeah. Odo's like, "Oh, <laughs> so this is a thing. <laughs> this is actually a thing." <laughs> the look of horror on Odo's face as well, which is difficult when he's the face he has being a changeling, but um, yeah. you can tell that um, basically, like like any of us, if we've forgotten a birthday or something, you know, it's like, "Oh my god!" <laughs> mm. It's really it, it's it's funny. It's a nice little comedic moment. Yeah, and. And as as Odo goes off, you know, Jake gets very suspicious. He can tell Quark's up to something. He decides to try and see if he can wrangle into just shadowing him in a way because he wants to get some real characters for his crime novel that he's working on. So he's just wanting to observe Quark as a bit of a character study. And Quark agrees, but under the condition that nothing ever appears in print, specifically about what happens, nor for anything to be mentioned to Cisco. Because plainly, whatever he's got planned is illegal. Yeah, well, I think we can assume that safely, can't we, when it's Quark? Um, yeah. <laughs> but it's, it's interesting because it goes to show um, how kind of clever Quark is, really, gives you an insight into that. It, that he's found, identified basically a blind spot on Odo, which is, you know, Major Kira, his relationship with Major Kira, and straight away he's, able, he's found a, a quite ingenious way to exploit that, I think, so he can, you know, <laughs> get one of his um schemes so uh, it mm. goes to show Quark is you know he is very in, very intelligent and knows when to exploit an opportunity when it presents itself but it's interesting because the way jake 
says he just wants to kind of shadow him. I mean, I don't know. Would that make him sort of an accessory to whatever crime Cork potentially commit? That's quite dangerous, I would think, of uh, of of Jake to yes. want to be involved involved in in that. So that I didn't quite buy, unfortunately. Um, I, I thought it would be foolish for Jake to get involved in something like that because he could put his father in a very awkward position um, mm. if it came out. And um, and like I said, if he doesn't actively do anything, if he's not reporting it as a crime to Odo, having watched court commit it, I think he's basically an accessory, so he could get in big trouble himself. But that maybe really that he's on. also knowing that Quark always gets away with it, though. There's that. There's an element of that as well. So I guess if you're headcanoning it, um, yeah, you could just say, well, yeah, um, he's confident that, you know, he'll be able to get away with it. But I think it is, it, it's a riskier thing than the sort of the way they talk about it and the tone of this B-plot for Jake. It's riskier than, than, than yeah, than, than the tone... Of the conversation, everything suggests. Yeah. We, we then return to the Defiant, and Cassidy's asking O'Brien if it's awkward having her as a civilian on board. And I, I love the way she describes it, having her on board a warship, not a starship, yeah. but the, the Defiant she explicitly calls out as being a warship. It doesn't get often called that. No. Does it really? Um, I mean, it was always designed purely for battle. Yeah. Specifically against the Borg, but yeah. Yeah, but yeah, like you say, as we learn in uh, The Search, part one, mm. um, when we first see the Defiant, it's basically, you know, we learn that this isn't a, a, a regular Starfleet ship. It's It was basically for war. Um, but it, it, just, despite that, it doesn't really get called that, and you kind of forget almost. And if anything, it's, it almost takes a civilian to look at it and, and just call it what it is. Yeah, exactly. And, and Lisa hears them talking. So they've now realized that they've established a two-way contact with her. And I just love her going like, whoever you are, I love you. Yeah. <laughs> she's, 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 she's fun. She's actually gen- she she's actually jovial and fun, yeah, despite her awful situation. Mm. I, I, and I think it's just, just the element of how much hope is suddenly there, just that two-way communication, I, I think, yes. helps a lot. And, and this is when we find out with the, that she is the commanding officer of a ship, uh, specifically the USS Olympia, and that there's been this energy barrier around the planet, uh, which you know, will obviously block quite a, a lot of stuff. She scanned it. There was a surge of radiation. It caused them to have to abandon ship. And next thing she knows, she awakes in, a, in an escape pod. So it does seem like that she, there's been a bit of memory loss as to what's happened or just confusion with amongst everything that was happening. Yeah. And it was an L-class planet, so not a regular M-class, which is what we would consider um, very habitable, such as Earth. Uh, There's a a real danger on an L-class planet of dying from hypoxia. And and we also learned that she hasn't spoken to anyone in two days as well. So it hasn't been too long that she's been on her own, but two days not knowing if you'll ever hear from somebody again, I think is... uh, is kind of upsetting and worrying. Um, oh, yes. But Cisco assures her that she'll have somebody on comms at all times. And and this goes to what you were saying about her being very jokey and lighthearted, because she asks him uh, if he can order them to enjoy it as well. <laughs> but so Cisco ag- agrees to take the first shift, and that's when he starts to talk to her about the Dominion War. They talk about his relationship with Cassidy, and... Lisa is just as 
I don't know what the term is. She's just as aware about people in the way that Quark is about Odo. You know, she can sense a lot of stuff and she can sense and tell that he's having issues, uh, which really catches him off guard. A lot of empathy. Yeah. And she starts to share stories about a civilian that she once dated because she's been in that kind of situation as well. And so they start having this kind of heart to heart. And this is when we kind of flip back to the B-plot. There's a lot of this flip-flopping back and forward with this, really, because uh, it is just two very simple plots side by side. Yeah, I think um, one plot, I mean, some episodes, a lot of episodes can just have the A-plot and that's it. But um, I think when there's an, um, a story, um, and I think this is, this is the perfect example where the A-plot clearly doesn't have enough to, to, to you know, fill a pad out the entire you know, 45 minutes, whatever it is of the episode, then um, they, they put in the, um, the B plot, but, but the B plot, they're, they're almost 50, 50 in some, well, probably more like 60, 40. Yeah. And the B plot is quite significant in this episode as well. I think it just goes to show, uh, I'm not criticizing the A plot at all. I think the A plot's very, very, very compelling, you know, um, and it's a great plot, but um, there, there, there just isn't enough in, in just a story of just them talking to, to Lisa. To, to have an entire episode for it on its the, own. The B-plot also gives you the sense of how much talking has happened without them having to write all that dialogue and having hours of just this backstory that, that they've been sharing. So yeah, exactly. It, it does kind of help you skip over time, really. Um, but, but then this is when we're seeing Odo showing off a necklace to Quark. And Quark casually asking, you know, what, Odo has planned. And Odo didn't think to have plans because he's only just learned that you need to have a gift for an anniversary. He doesn't realize that plans are involved too. And <laughs> Quark very cleverly manipulates him into renting a hollow suite because, of course, he does. Yes. And this, of course, then means that Odo will be busy allowing Quark to be free to engage in all manner of illegal activities. Yeah, I mean, at this point, you're still not, um, it's not clear if Odo is onto him in any way uh, uh, either. So, yeah, again, it's just emphasizing the fact that it seems that Quark has found almost like the perfect blind spot for yeah. to, you know, use <laughs> to exploit. Yeah. And back on the Defiant, Bashir is now taking his turn to talk to Lisa, but he is not paying attention at all. He's just saying yeah to everything. So, Lisa starts faking being attacked as though there's some monster that's come in. And then she takes on the voice of the monster saying how he's eaten her. Bashir realizes he's been had and apologizes (laughs) and says that she's now has his complete attention. It's just there's so much fun banter that follows that moment all about the whole that he is just dug for himself. Yeah. <laughs> he will not let him live it down. And he realizes just how much of a mistake he's made from just being so uh, head first in his work. It's a really good uh, bit of insight into Lisa's um, sense of humor, which is kind of twisted yeah. um, as well. And now she's kind of sharp as attack as, as, as well. Um, but she'd make a really good counselor, I think. Um, better than like Deanna Troy, really. Uh, she's able to really, you know, interpret people's emotions and moods just from hearing them talk. 
Mm. Yeah, she's really good at that. And she's just funny as well with it, considering the situation. She's yeah, in. absolutely. I love that Odo, for his Holosuite program, chooses Paris in 1928. You've got uh, an alien that was found by Bajorans dating a Bajoran, but they don't choose a Bajoran program. They choose Paris in 1928. Yeah. Oh, you know what? I think that's a bit that's a bit of a cop-out. I mean, um, yeah. obviously everyone thinks Paris, oh yeah, romantic. But they could, they could come up with some cool new planet or ricer or something, um, you know. Um, but yeah, I guess it's kind of a bit lazy, I think, just to say we're going to go to Paris. Um, part of me thought it's because oh, they're going to have a scene on the ho- holodeck and obviously it's cheaper just to be, be able to film somewhere that looks like Paris, not to come up with some new alien set. But mm. you, you, don't have, you don't actually get to see that. So I, I thought that was a bit lazy, actually. I'm being a bit harsh, I know, but yeah. No, I... I, I agree, though. It's it's very much just to give you a sense of the kind of program it's going to be. But yeah, it also, to me, doesn't, yeah, it doesn't make sense to me as to why he would choose that particular one. Yeah, why would that appeal to people that probably have very little experience of Earth, you know? So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but this is when we also find out that his first date didn't go well, uh, which is a, a reference to the episode His Way. So now he's wanting to celebrate the anniversary of their first kiss, which was on the Sunday, not the Saturday. And Quark goes into a panic because he starts trying to contact his client and can't get through to them. So Odo, without knowing that he's, uh, that Quark's up to stuff, has now just put the biggest spanner in the works. Yeah, and it really has increased the sense of uh, jeopardy for Quark considerably, and it really makes you wonder how he can... And it also makes you interested in how he's going to get himself out of this. So, yeah. Yeah. I like yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's not like... It's, it, it, I think it would be different if it was the Friday, because if things go well on the Friday, then there's a chance Odo might be distracted on the Saturday. But with it happening on the Sunday, Odo is going to be full Odo on Saturday. Exactly. Um, that blind spot will be, won't be available. Um, so yeah. yeah, he's in big trouble. Is yeah. the you know what's happening? So it's now O'Brien's turn to chat with Lisa, and he starts to compare the Cardassian War to the Dominion War because obviously he's been through all of that as well, which has always been an interesting part of his character that we've seen all the way since Next Generation. And yes, we see that there's a burden on his shoulders from dealing with the war. Because even though he's been through this before, like that doesn't make it any easier. And because others don't understand what he's been through, he doesn't feel comfortable talking to his friends or even to Keiko about it. And yeah, I think so, we've got um, a, a really good sort of, well, um, I don't know what you call it, but, but a biographical kind of um, overview of what he went through. Um, yeah. in the TNG episode, The Wounded, I think it was. Yes, um, it was, yeah. Yeah, and um, it's nice to see that's not been forgotten about and it's still referenced, mm. you know, just from, from a continuity perspective, yeah, for the character. Yeah. I, I, I like that they start off the conversation as well with how he's always told that he needs to speak to a counsellor and he doesn't see the point of them, <laughs> even with his dealings with Deanna Troy. Um, Throwing he shade just, on Deanna there. That's it, I know. And then uh, they go through all of this and then they come full circle to the conclusion that the only person it leaves to talk to about this stuff would be a counsellor. 
So <laughs> there was still the, uh, the the point for that. Um, but Bashir comes in Guy, and then he takes... Guinan would have been the best person. Guinan would have been the best person to talk about. She's the best cat counsellor. Oh, yeah. She, yeah, she, <laughs> she, she makes a better counsellor than the ship's official counsellor, for sure. It's gone, yeah, it's an ongoing joke that the, the amount of times the crew come to her to ask for advice and she does a better job than what we see Troy doing. Um, yeah. yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah. It's a shame that they didn't write Troy in that way, but that's a conversation for another time. And yes. Bashir takes over and he starts going into a conversation and Lisa brings up the fact that he's genetically engineered. So they've already had that conversation as well. So she's yeah. really getting to know all the little ins and outs uh, of, and all the, the deep uh, personal information of this crew. Yeah, I mean, it shows how many hours potentially of, you know, she's been talking to people like um, a, you know, several dozen by this point, I would say. Yeah, and this is where I think the, the B plot helps with that rather than it just feeling disjointed. It, that, that time away really kind of lends itself to this, yeah. which I think is good. Um, and, and then we learn that Lisa's run out of medication and she's starting to feel the effects of the carbon dioxide poisoning. This is all because her last vial was tainted. So she's got two days left and they are still three days away from getting to the planet at this point. And there's this yeah. really interesting conversation this discussion about pushing the ship faster, potentially faster than it's designed to, and all of the the pros and cons for what it would mean to the ship and its stability and so on. Yeah, I think it establishes the actual kind of uh, maximum warp speed it can do. I mean, for some reason, I don't really think about it, but it's mm. not like Voyager or, or or the Enterprise D, which can hit, you know, 9.7, 9.8, 9.9. Um, I think Voyager's cruise velocity is like literally warp 9.9 yeah. um so that's when it can literally happily you know stay at that speed without without major issues whereas the defiant is a lot slower i think um there's o'brien so i think 9.5 is about the absolute limit that it can do with a lot of risk yeah. um but i think this idea that the defiant it's just establishing that defiant is a completely different ke- like like animal compared to like your voyages and your enterprises it, it, it's a warship it generate it funnels its energy into different areas um, than you know your regular star exploratory starships do, um, and it's really really interesting that um, how that affects something that we don't really think too much of. You know the 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 upper limit of the warp speed that it can achieve um, because it's well, not designed well, to get places quick. You know on a regular basis. Well, when it was brought out of mothballs, uh, it was brought up that the original design meant that the weapons kind of overpowered it, and it almost ripped itself apart just from how powerful a ship it was. Yeah. Because there were those design limitations. Yeah, and I think um, it gets established that after the like this other, you know the search and later into season three, four, five, and so on, that um, O'Brien kind of made made his own kind of tweaks and uh, and, and upgrades mm. to it to kind of get it to be a bit more manageable and to be a competent, you know, well a, a super um, valuable ship in the especially in the, the, the Dominion War, um, invaluable really. Um, so yeah. Um, but Brian is kind of the reason why it can kind of do what it does, really, without tearing itself apart, I think. Yeah. And then we have this cold interaction between Cisco and Cassidy as well, which Cisco ends up discussing with Lisa, uh, and Lisa being the insightful empath that she is, 
points out that he's having issues dealing with it on duty because he can't mix work with his personal life. And yeah, which is good because it seemed like he was just being grumpy for no good reason to Cassidy, who's quite nice and, and polite and mm. uh, is really nice to Benjamin. Um, but um, there was no reason. That it was. It, it seemed like he's just being a dick. Um, but now we know why. You kind of breathe a sigh of relief because he's the character that we like. We don't want him to be a dick for no for no reason. So mm. yeah, and it's an I interesting mean, thing uh, as well that has caused him to be grumpy. Yeah, I mean, because one of the other things as well is that for me personally, I've never liked the idea of dating somebody that I work with. I've always wanted to keep those two separate. And so this is always an episode with this point that kind of spoke to me. Uh, Whereas I know for you, that's where you met your partner was in the workplace. Um, So like, what's your kind of feelings with that and, uh, and Cisco's dilemma? It's a bit of a different situation because, um, you know, um, it wasn't like I was working there and um, I was in a relationship with someone and then they started working there as well. I'm, we both were just working um, where we were working and that's how we met. Um, mm. And it was also the nature of the place where we were working wasn't uh, a situation where we would be constantly around each other. Um, in fact, you know, we could be on different shifts and a different day off. I suppose that's kind of similar to how it's been with the pandemic for a lot of people that they've always had that this is my workplace, this is my relationship place. And then suddenly the pandemic threw people together where they're around their partner 24-7. And that certainly put a lot of strain on people's relationships. And that's certainly kind of what he's feeling being stuck on the defiant where he doesn't have her to go home to. She's there the whole time. Yeah. And especially with him being in, I'm in captain mode now. I'm not in family man mode. Yeah. And um, it's, yeah, obviously we have the same with the pandemic now and um, situation with that. Obviously we're both working from home now, probably for, uh, probably for an on, on an ongoing basis. It's, it's, it works out well for us because um, we're both in different jobs um, anyway. And um, we don't, you know, we're both in the same room with our own desks, but, it's not like we're constantly talking to each other or, or getting in each other's way. So, um, but it, it, it's, it's actually really good because now we don't have to worry about traveling back home. Um, if we want to do something in the evenings, we can do it super easy now because we're, you know, at home. Um, and it's actually kind of a bit of a joy really for us now with this extra time we've got. And, you know, um, but with a much different situation to Cisco where he's in a place where it's not appropriate for him to have, you know, people around him that are fa- uh, a family and he's trained to be you know to be able to deal with this stuff without pe- people around him in that sort of situation so i think um the way he, when he has to deal with it he just gets a bit grumpy about it um yeah so you can't really blame him now it's explained i think you can kind of you can understand why he might be like that yeah yeah we return to the dilemma of quark where he's feeling that his merchandise is now going to be a complete and utter loss and figures that odo will eventually find out and yeah, he's kind of sat there thinking like, you know, he's he's taking credit for Odo making a move on Kira and getting them together in the first place and complaining, you know, what did I get for it? At which point he brings up rule of acquisition number 285. No good deed ever goes unpunished. And it's 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 remarkable how yeah. many times these rules can actually actually fit quite well. It's amazing how they're like human anecdotes uh, as well. <laughs> yeah. So Quark and Jake then leave the cargo bay and Odo shapeshifts 
from a canister. Oh dear, rumbled. Yeah, I think I think anytime Quark goes to the cargo bay, I I like to think that Odo is always there, shapeshifted as a canister. <laughs> That's what he does all day. Yeah, every single day of the week that is he just shapes us into a canister because all all dealings that are going to be illegal are going to happen there, right? Yeah, <laughs> so he might as well just stay there the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. so Quark's accepting defeat and Odo shows up in a tux, which obviously he's morphed himself, and asks if he can have the hollow suite. And that Kira said that he, uh, that Quark was right, that it should have been on the first date that they celebrate. Uh, so yeah. Quark then realizes, like, I'm going to win this one, Jake. You know what the best part is? I beat him. I beat Odo. And finally, that sigh of relief that he's getting. Then yeah. we've got Kira talking with Odo, saying about how Quark looks happy, and, and Odo pointing out that he should be because he's about to make his biggest profit of the year and that he owes him one. But just this one, it's only this one that, that he gets. But I, I think it's it's a really neat thing where Odo does understand what Quark has done. And he is letting, but he's not letting him know. That's the only thing. He doesn't, he doesn't want him to ever know. But Kira is still surprised every time that she thinks she's got Odo figured out. Then he pulls something like this. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great way to end the B-plot because um, we were saying earlier how, you know, Quark has probably now found a weakness in Odo, but that's obviously mm. just been shut down. He, it, it isn't at all because um, Odo is onto him. It also adds a lot to Odo's character as to how sort of industrious and how clever and how intelligent he is to see through how being manipulated and actually using it to his advantage and actually letting <laughs> Quark believe um, that. Um it doesn't undermine Quark necessarily as well. There's no reason why Quark would have assumed that Odo would have figured it out. He probably thought that he had found the perfect thing to catch out um, Odo on. Um, there was nothing to suggest that he hadn't. Um, so it doesn't throw any shade on on Quark's character either. Um, and it also just shows that there's kind of an affection there as well. Oh, they are kind of mates in a weird way. And Odo... Yeah, a lot of compassion. Yeah. And there's a lot of com- compassion... They're just like an odd cut, showing that they're they're just an odd cu- couple. And you know, I think I think Odo knows that Quark isn't a bad person. He's not. He's not evil. He's not. You know, conniving. He's just trying to go about his business. And sometimes he just steps across the law a little bit doing that. And Odo is actually willing to let him do that because there's probably more. He's got bigger fish to fry, and he probably mm. knows Quark will never do anything truly bad. He won't kill someone. You know. He petty stuff, which is wrong, but you know, at the end of the day, he's got bigger things to deal with, and he'll give him some leeway. And this is just an example of that, and um, just adds a lot to Odo's character and uh, both of them, uh, really. Yeah, I mean, it didn't really need Cisco, but Jake Cisco to be involved in this. I felt like the idea of him shadowing him was just so it was a way of Cork to do an exposition dump in, in each mm. act. Um, to, to, to Jake, so you know we knew what Cork was up to. Because if he was just going about it on his own, there wouldn't be a mechanism for Cork to tell us what he's doing. Um, so Jake's really there as an exposition dump, um, which is why, yeah, we have to kind of buy the idea that he's happy to potentially get implicated in the being accessory to a crime. But um, <laughs> that's probably why that has happened. Yeah, 
but as you say, that pretty much wraps up the the B plot. So now we get to the, yeah. the meat of things, where the Defiant has arrived at the planet, and Bashir gives the news that Lisa has just lost consciousness. Brian's looking at this barrier and realizing that the Defiant can't pass through it without facing the same fate as the Olympia. So they're considering their options. Cisco decides to take the risk of using a shuttle because they didn't go all that way just to give up at the final hurdle. Um, yeah, there was one interesting thing about this bit um, of the episode. Um, I never actually considered that the Defiant had some kind of like shuttlecraft or shuttle pods or like autonomous vehicles, whatever you call those sort of things. Um, mm. I mean, I, I think we, we kind of, I assumed all kind of starships have a shuttle bay. Um, but I guess the Defiant being much smaller than most of the starships that, you know, we know of, um, that isn't really practical. So instead you have these um, shuttle pods um, that are kind of reminiscent of the ones you see in Star Trek Enterprise. Um, yeah. that seem to be fairly well equipped, you know, not too, you know, not much of a downgrade uh, from a regular shuttle. Um, I think it's, they might even be custom like or unique to the, the Defiant class of Starship. So, yeah, that was an interesting little... Um, technical star trek universe thing that kind of and i think this that's probably the first episode um where we see some kind of a a shuttlecraft come out of a a, a defiant class starship possibly uh, i can't there there was the one where they went through a barrier and uh and met their descendants but i can't remember if they went through in a shuttle pod or they beamed down for that one yeah neither can i i think they beamed down um in that one yeah um but yeah, I think this might be the first time, probably the last time as well, actually, because it's obviously very late in season six. But yeah, yeah. that was just an interesting little Star Trek thing <laughs> hmm. I thought was cool. Lisa needs to be on board within the next 45 minutes, given her condition. Uh, the shuttle pod thankfully makes it uh, through, but they can't detect any life signs. They do find the crash site, and from there they find a cave, and they remark that they're now... Uh, 20 minutes left. So this this whole period has taken 25 minutes already just to reach the surface, which, you know, makes sense for the distance that they're traveling. Yeah. So yeah. they're hunting through the caves and they find a long deceased female that's wearing a TNG era uniform. And there's no mistaking the fact that this is definitely her, that this, this could only be Lisa and that she died three years ago. So... They know that the energy barrier has caused the communications to shift through time in both directions. They, they want to bury her, but Cisco makes a point that it shouldn't be in a cave. She should have a, a proper burial amongst friends. Yes. Which yeah. is, is obviously them. And they throw an Irish wake, which is a way to memorialize death and celebrate life at the same time, which kind of reminds me a little bit of the next phase from the next generation where Ro and Geordi are put out of phase and everybody thinks that they're dead. And Data tries to come up with something that kind of celebrates both, which is really a celebration of life. And this Irish wake it feels very much kind of like that. It's good uh, Senator Vrenak isn't in this episode because he would have said, it's a wake. <laughs> Probably, but yeah. Oh, I, I, love, I love Wolf's comment though, when he tells Dax that it almost sounds Klingon. Yeah, but I, I think overall I do prefer Jordy and Rose's funeral. It's, that that one was a lot more upbeat. Yeah, there was like like jazz music and everything, wasn't there? It's a very charming scene, though. I mean, you've got um, yeah, you've got Lisa's coffin with the 
Starfleet, uh, the United Federation planets, or the Starfleet flag, I think, uh, draped over it. Basically how mm. me and you want to be buried. Um, <laughs> I think. Um, Must update my will for that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's, it's a very charming scene. Um, and you feel sad because Lisa is someone that you kind of grew to really like through the course of the episode, through her personality, which is a, you know, a, a testament to, to, to the actress playing her. Um, you don't see her at all, but you, also you just hear her voice. Um, yeah. The actress is called Deborah Wilson. Really great performance from her, just you know, by through her voice, we get mm. to really feel like she's the warmth of her character, and you really like really enjoy hearing her talk and interacting with the defiant crew. Um, and it's sad when you find out that she's died, and it's an interesting twist um, as well. Um, they could have easily have just had it where they just ran out of time and she died, you know, which would have been probably more difficult to deal with because you think, oh, they really could have saved her. But the fact that it was an interesting little time conundrum thing has happened, which is a very Star Trek way to sort of tie this episode up. Um, really, mm. you know, shows there was really no chance and makes it more tra tragic that she's basically now been there dead for three years and there was never any hope. It adds an entire extra layer of, you know, of sadness to it that wasn't there up until that very point that you find that out in the last act. She's also, like you say, like it would be nice to have seen more She's the Ensign Jatal of Deep Space Nine. Yeah. Who we've, uh, we've spoken about before, how you, you get to really find a lot of warmth in this character. And it is such a, a sad and a, it's such a loss that this is all we got. But again, that is what makes this episode so powerful, really, that you can connect to a character. Now, I, I think it's more that you connect with Jatal quite a lot. Whereas with this episode, you connect with how the rest of the crew have connected with her. Yeah, exactly. And you're more kind of connected to their loss. Yeah, and you see you see how they kind of grow to connect to her as well through through the through the course of the episode with their mm -hmm. um, interactions and babysitting her comm sig signal through through the course of the episode. Um, whereas Jital, it was just like another member of the crew that they all knew, sort sort of thing. Um, and there wasn't like a growth up 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 to that point, like you had um, in this. But it's interesting yeah. when you sort of, you know, um, I think they, she had she she crashed onto this planet in twenty three seventy one, and then she you know she dies you know not long after that. And that is the same year as uh, that is the, uh, the the first season of Voyager um, happens. So just to give you an idea of what was going on um, mm. at that point in time, and uh, yeah, I think uh, you can't really tell quite what uniform she has. And I think it was a TNG uniform, which I think is established that. A lot of uh, like starships still use, um, even though well, Voyager had the DS Nine style style new uniform. But yeah, well, well, they they assumed that the reason why she didn't know anything about the Dominion War is because the um, the Olympia was on a deep space mission, so they wouldn't have returned to Earth. Yeah. for their updated uniforms just yet. Yeah, but it's, it's also established in um, Paradise Lost in Deep Space Nine when Cisco mm. goes back to Earth that. People still, you know, the the TNG era uniform is kind of um, alongside, um, used alongside the DS9 sort of jumpsuit, and isn't really completely phased out. I don't think until uh, the the grey uniform comes in with Star Trek First Contact. So, yeah, yeah that that like as someone that nitpicks of that stuff, it does actually line up. Um, I don't know if there was someone that was conscious of that um, on 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 the show. I think there probably was, but yeah. That uh, was a little trekky nitpick thing mm. I wanted to point out. <laughs> but but this is where we get to the foreshadowing. 
that we alluded to at the beginning of this uh, this breakdown, because Bashir starts giving a speech uh, about Lisa's death and and talking about how Lisa taught him that sometimes it's necessary to talk about how he feels about friends. And O'Brien starts talking about how he's felt alone, surrounded by all his friends, whilst in reality, she was truly alone because she didn't have anybody there. And so he's learned that importance of having those friends around him. And he makes a very important statement saying that one of these days, we'll find that someone is missing from the circle. And on that day, we're going to mourn and we shouldn't have to mourn. Yeah. The camera then points at Jadzia. Yeah, yeah. And then he ends his speech with Talisa and the sweet sound of her voice. And of course, that foreshadows that it's only the next episode that Jadzia dies. Yeah, really, really laying it on thick with the uh, foreshadowing. I mean, in a good way. Uh, I'm not saying it's over the top. I I can't remember Uh, if I knew, I think I knew already that she was going to die. Yeah, I think by this time, the best you would have had probably is, uh, I think you, you might be able to get the VHS tape of this episode probably around the time it was shown on Sky, which would have been yeah. the earliest UK showing, I think. might have been just before um, it's shown on Sky. I don't know what, what, what the releases were, how they lined up in those days. But um, yeah, um, chances are if you were buying Star Trek monthly, for sure. Also the internet, if you had access to it at this point, um, which was a bit more mainstream at this point in time. Um, nothing. I still had, didn't have like regular access to it at this point outside of school. But yeah, um, and certainly if you bought like you know Starlog uh, from the uh, you know if you had a news agent that stocked it, you would have known that um, Terry Farrell was leaving. Um, so yeah, it probably wouldn't be too much of a surprise. I think I would have already known as well. Um, so that probably would have been quite impactful. I think if you knew that, and uh, she's not really in the episode at all, apart from at the wake at the end. Apparently that was on. Uh, deliberate because um i or stephen bear wanted to uh, uh give us some time off to attend auditions for other series um mm. having you know having announced that she was going to be leaving so she's actually in this for a practical you know, life reason that she needed to go and audition for other stuff and she's only yeah. really in it at the end and barely talks but yeah really foreshadows that and it kind of gives her a, a it adds a bit more gravitas to what happens to her i think even though it's not in you know it's the next episode where it actually happens but yeah, knowing what you know, it adds more impact to it for sure. And it's interesting when you talk about the like her going for auditions because Deborah Wilson, who you, as you mentioned, we only heard as a voiceover. When she auditioned, she did it by voice only. And yeah. something that I think worked really well was that she wasn't actually allowed to meet the cast until after they had finished filming. Oh right, so, yeah, yeah. So I, I'd like to think that they'd had her kind of off to the side or they already had her lines recorded and they were listening to her voiceover being played on set. And so they were probably getting that connection without even knowing potentially what she even looked like. Yeah. I think that's an interesting directorial decision. Yeah. And I I think it worked brilliantly because um, Mm. the connection that you really feel the connection that they they have with Lisa through the course of the episode is really strong, probably with O'Brien more and, and, and Cisco more, more than, than anybody else. Um, and over the course of the episode, they really do a good job of building her up to the point where you genuinely feel sad at this wake at the end, but also glad that she did get some kind of a, you know, um, some kind of a burial 
with you know other Starfleet, a proper Starfleet burial. No bagpipes, though. No bagpipes. No. Um, well, I suppose it was an Irish week, not a. <laughs> yeah, but Spock, a Spock's not Scottish, and he's still got bagpipes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I don't know if it's a typical thing where you fight. You, if you if you die, you know, in, in line of duty and stuff, you always get shot in a photon torpedo into space. Um, <laughs> it's implied, I think, that you do. Um, but that might have happened later after. It's the whole burial at sea, isn't it? Yeah, I think she probably would have after after this. Uh, you know, um, this this wake. Um, unless you have, you know, maybe people do like to get buried normally, like or you know, traditionally, I suppose you want to call it, in in twenty fourth century. Yeah, I mean, I'd I'd like to think that she was after they'd had their memorial for her, that they'd also got in touch with her family because it's only three years since she died, so. She'll still yeah. have friends and family elsewhere that I'm sure would like to have the body before it's just jettisoned out the airlock. Yeah, that, that raises a, like, like some other questions as well. I mean, obviously would have reported the ship missing. Um, did nobody go to that planet where the ship is, is you know, um, was lost? Unless, like, any of the messages that are any of the, the uh, distress call. Because the, the Olympia got, like, trapped in, like, the, like, the phenomenal of the phenomena that the planet has um, mm. caused it to get trapped, doesn't it? And ultimately destroyed. Perhaps like the time issue meant any distress signals that it sent out weren't getting picked up. But even then... Well, that's what um, they said, that it went forward through time, three years. But then when yeah. they're replying back, their communications go back in time three years, which is why it feels real time to them. Yeah. Which is kind um, of the plot to Frequency, which is a, a movie with um, Dennis Quaid. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, there's also the uh, the Voyager episode, Eye of the Needle, uh, oh, where yes, they find yes. uh, the Romulan, uh, and it turns out he's um, from you know quite like like a hundred years uh, uh, earlier. Um, so yeah, there's kind of a similar thread, although that, that would have been made uh, um, before this episode by a couple of years, yeah. I think. But yeah, um, it's a great episode. Um, it's a very low key episode. It's a bit of a breather in the middle of this war that's really starting to ramp up, and it'll ramp up it even more immediately after this, especially the next episode, as we've already touched upon. Um, and I yeah. think it's, a, it's, a, it's a, a kind of Star Trek that we're not really seeing in modern Star Trek. A lot of what, of what we have in like Discovery, and it's entire seasons of universe-threatening jeopardy that has to be solved. We don't really get an episode that's just a fairly self-contained bottle show, or an episode like Survivors in TNG, where it's just a one-off you know, phenomenon that's being investigated. It's kind of everything is really high stakes. Everything has to be, you know, we're stopping the universe I, from getting blown up. I would counter that, though, with the fact that this episode, I don't think could have happened earlier in Deep Space Nine because it's really a reflection on where they're at in the midst of this war. And as we've seen before, the way that you connect to the characters and their connection to Lisa is because you've already had that connection with them. Yes. For all this time. Yeah, I think I think I, I sort of mostly agree with you on that, but I do think um, you could potentially have this episode in any Star Trek series. Um, I think Voyager could pick up a signal oh. from a planet yeah. and rescue someone. Um, but I think the the, the the nature of the the universe it's in, you know, the Deep Space Nine universe, um, the you know what specifically has been happening in this season, what happens just after it, as you said, 
um, does probably help increase the level of emotion and, and, and jeopardy and impact that that it has for sure. Yeah. yeah, I just I just don't think it could have happened in like season two, for example. You know, the, the fact that we went through a lot with Bashir learning, you know, that he was genetically enhanced and all of the stuff that that entails. And it's almost a throwaway line where you suddenly realize like he's talked to her about that stuff in just a matter of days. Yes. You know, just showing how comfortable they are and stuff. And you, you understand more that what that means in terms of yeah. their, their friendship and stuff. Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I think it's, it's another great, like low key deep space nine episode. Um, mm. And um, it, it was great casting to get Deborah Wilson in. Did a great job with just basically her voice. And, you know, the, the, the twist at the end is a really unexpected twist. That I don't think anybody would have really have ever guessed. So that's, that's a great moment when you hear that. Um, very saddening, very extremely, like, tragic when, when you hear it. Really increases the amount of emotion and, you know, sadness and shock, really, with, with the time-traveling twist out there at the end. And, and the B-plot is good as well. The B-plot's fun, very throwaway, and, like, you know, nothing really will be affected by it which is probably what a B-plot is, really. But very charming um, at the same time, really helps to solidify that relationship that Odo and Quark have, probably more from the Odo side. Yeah. Um, it was a bit silly, that the, the idea of like um, Jake sort of shadowing him, I think is a bit silly. We've already t- touched upon why, why I think that. But apart from that, um, even the B-plot is really good. And I think the fact that the A-plot probably doesn't, wasn't quite enough for it to take up the entire episode helps for them to be able to pad out that B plot and give you a really good B plot when, mm. you know, perhaps other shows where the A plot can only could does about three quarters and you've got about another quarter for an a, for a B plot. You get a very throwaway B plot that's quite tedious and you just want to get back to the main story. But um, <laughs> on this they kind of evened out perfectly. It's um, a nice balance for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think one final thing that I want to explore is when they get to the planet and they realize that she died three years ago and so there's nothing they could have done i do wonder what would be worse finding that there was no chance or if there wasn't this time differential and they happened to just get there just mere minutes too late um i think probably fine if there wasn't a time differential because with the time differential it eliminates any possible i guess guilt that the crew mm. would have felt and not getting there in time. Whereas, you know, if she was, um, if she, if she, if she then there wasn't a time issue at all, you'd only have to think things like, God, if we were in like on the, on, on enterprise, on, on the enterprise, you know, we could have gone faster. That would have easily have made up that, you know, we would have got there with hours, you know, potentially to spare. So it's a horrible dilemma, isn't it? Trying to compare the two scenarios. But I think yeah. having the time differential eliminates any sense of guilt or you know, they shouldn't feel guilty because, you know, yeah. um, anyway, because they, they would have done their best regardless. But yeah, I think that I, I think having it, it probably, that way. I think it probably equates the same as a viewer. that it, it removes any sour taste in your mouth that you may have as well. It does. Because then you would probably, you know, you would headcanon it, wouldn't you? You'd be like, God, are they just they're feeling there was a faster ship? If only the Defiant could go faster, they could have. This whole thing would have been easy. Um, so yeah. it eliminates the nitpickiness of you know ways that you could have saved that person. Um, it, there's nothing they could have done, which adds to the tragedy really um, as well. Yeah. So yeah, probably, probably um, gives the writers a pass as well, where you just kind of like, okay, so that's fair. They 
you know, it's yeah. not just the writers just going, oh, and we'll, we'll, we'll just dial it just a few minutes too late. You know, it, yeah. uh, it does add that extra, that extra to it. And it is Star yeah. Trek after all. So, Indeed. Well, that, I think, wraps up this episode of Long Range Sensors. If you have any thoughts, comments, or questions for us, let us know by emailing us at longrangesensors at iCloud.com. And, of course, you can also follow us on Twitter over at Star Trek LOS. If you enjoyed the show and would like to help support us, you can also subscribe via Patreon to gain access to our private Discord channel, to vote on content you'd like us to discuss in upcoming episodes, and listen to our new movie commentary we recently released of Star Trek III The Search for Spock. Find out how you can join to get these exclusive benefits and more by visiting patreon.com slash longrangesensors. But as always, another amazing way to help support the show is to let others know about it. Telling a friend, sharing it on social media, or sending a distress call to a passing starship goes a really long way to help us grow the show. My name is Alastair, and you can find everything I'm up to at alastairmcfly.com. You can also follow me at imcfly on Twitter, in addition to catching me on Twitch over at twitch.tv slash alastairmcfly. Trev, where can people find you? Uh, you can follow me at Henry Jones Jr. on Twitter. And if you enjoy discussions about video games, such as the one we've just done, you can hear more about that kind of thing on my other podcast, Console Shock, um, where myself and my co-host Stu talk about modern and retro games. You can listen to it on our website at consoleshock.net or anywhere else you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Long Range Sensors, where hopefully you liked the sound of our voices. 